Welcome to episode 90 of Stageworthy. I'm your host, Phil Rickaby. Stageworthy features conversations with Canadian theatre makers, from actor to director to playwright to more. If you're listening for the first time and you like what you hear, I would love it if you'd subscribe to the podcast. You can find Stageworthy on Apple Podcasts, Google Music, or wherever you get your podcasts. And whether you're a new listener or you've been listening for a while, please consider leaving a comment or rating. Your ratings and comments help new listeners find the show. And if you want to drop me a line, I would love to hear from you. You can find Stageworthy on Facebook and Twitter at StageworthyPod, and you can find the website at StageworthyPodcast.com. If you were listening last week, you heard me go on something of a rant, which was a bit of a departure. Um, While I've occasionally had something to say about Canadian theatre before going into a conversation, I've never done a rant-only episode of the podcast, and I don't intend to make that a habit. But I did think that, that... I thought it was, it, I still think that it's important. And I think it's important, I still think it's important that, that when we see theater companies that don't reflect the diversity of our, the, of, our, of our real lives, of Canada, that we call them out. But a couple of people were quick to, to tell me and to, to let me know that uh, while I said that Factory Theater in Toronto was the only theater company that had a person of color at its head, that that was not quite correct. There are a couple of other theater companies, and I would love to call them out and just to, to recognize them because it is important that when a theater company is reflecting the diversity that, that is, a, is an essential part of Canada, that we do call them out. And so I want to I want to point out that the Gateway Theater in Vancouver has there's their artistic director, Giovanni Sai, and Theater Calgary has Staffer Arama as the artistic director, and also a One Light Theater in Halifax with Shahin Siadi as the artistic director. And there are a number of other other theaters that, that do have people of color at their heads, and it is important that that we both patronize and that we recognize those theater companies for, for their diversity. So thanks again to everyone who, who reached out to me about my my incorrect statement and as always, thank you so much for listening. My guest this week is actor-director Courtney Chung Lancaster. She's currently directing Theatre in Murata's Grey, which opens September 21st and runs to October 1st at the Commons Theatre in Toronto. I've done the classic thing that I do whenever I have a period of unemployment, which is I've agreed to do far too many things right now, wow. which is fine. I'm I'm in a show. I'm directing a show. I'm producing a series of events at Soul Pepper, sponsoring a <laughs> refugee family. Everything's fine. It's all going to be fine, Phil. Of course. Of course. It's just, it, you know, you just uh, do what you do. Yeah. You just get through it. It's good. I mean, I feel, all... you're probably in the same boat. You seem to have a million things on the go. I have a lot of things on the go, but, uh, you know, I have my day job and I have so many other things that I do as well. So I know, I know how it is. I just, yeah. saying no seems to be oh, a problem. Every year, every year. <laughs> I say, this is the year that I'm going to say no to things. I'm going to be mm-hmm. discerning and careful about my time and protective of my time at home, which is important and valuable. And I fail. I fail. Next year though, Phil, next year is going to be... <laughs> I always say the same thing. Actually, I've gotten a little better at saying no. I have a few friends who are completely incapable of saying the word no. Mm. And then they're like, why am I doing 15 things and I don't know what I'm doing yet? <clears throat> and you're so. like, well, you did that to yourself now, didn't you? Yes. Yeah, basically. <laughs> but then we have a, a nice conversation about the importance of no. Good. Right, it's good that you're sharing that. the gospel. Well, okay. it's. I mean, I, I spent so much time saying yes to everything until I exhausted myself and burned out and then yeah. i said okay so now i'm gonna to have to pick and choose yeah yeah it is a legitimate problem i think it's a kind of a general problem in our industry I guess. well i mean generally i think that we don't i think that that we we do too much because we love it mm-hmm. and i think in a way sometimes that undervalues what we do oh man that's a whole other podcast i guess <laughs> I'm really yeah. torn because I I work uh, I often work 
under co-op uh, uh, under um, collective contracts like all of us mm-hmm. yeah and we're all just so game and so willing to work for no money um but that that's a double-edged sword isn't it like it really is it really is i mean we love the work we want to do it. we want to support it but then we end well the pro i guess the question is you know if we didn't do that would the work would that show mm-hmm. have seen the light of day and is that worth seeing the light of day it becomes one of those catch 22 things totally. it's really difficult whole other podcast whole other podcast. of course yeah but yeah. but to your point about like about the no and and wanting the work done i i agree with you but i also think there's times i know personally there are times where i say yes out of a kind of anxiety or um an almost egotistical need to uh, like a gratitude for being even asked mm, and, yeah. and, and because I have this period of maybe where I'm, I'm not working or I have some time mm. and, and that's terrifying to have some time. And so I say, yes, maybe not. And it's not always about the work. And those are the ones you really know you should have said no to. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. It's, it's one of those, like, I don't wonder where that comes from because we spend so much time saying yes to things and we like we feel like oh I've got some free time I have to fill it with something exactly yeah yeah because yeah. it's because we're it's such an inconsistent life we lead right we never know yeah. we'll have something when we don't so absolutely absolutely yeah. so before we start talking about about gray yeah. um I would love to to talk to you about um well I mean, one of the things that I always like to like to sort of explore is is why people choose this career path, this life. Hmm. So, uh, what drew you to theater, and uh, what made you decide <laughs> that it was the thing that you were going to do with your life? Wow, I bet a lot of people have really deep answers to that, and I I feel like I don't. I I, I grew up in I grew up in a very very rural Nova Scotia, and. Um, I, in a small, small town where a, a great little town, Anaganish, Nova Scotia, there's a university there. So that brings a bit of, um, the world to Anaganish, mm-hmm. uh, whereas a lot of small towns, you don't necessarily get exposed to a lot. So Anaganish had a little community theater and a little sort of, uh, summer stock theater in the, in the summer times, uh, doing some professional stuff. Um, and so as a kid, I started doing some community theater and I was a super awkward child um really really nerdy and not not great with people and um not cool not cool phil i know that must be shocking to hear but i was not a cool child (laughs) and uh and then the theater i think as it is for a lot of people became a kind of um oasis in that i felt at home and everybody was lovely and i suddenly i felt in control of myself and my body and my voice in a way that I didn't feel in any other part of my life. Um, so it became really attractive. And so I started doing a lot of it, a lot of community theater. And at some point someone said, well, why don't you do this for a job? And that had never really occurred to me as a possibility, but nor had anything else. Mm. That's the funny thing. I, 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 kids, I meet teenagers in Toronto and they're so sophisticated. They all go <laughs> to like science high schools or mm-hmm. or arts high schools or technology high schools and they all know what they want to be and in rural nova scotia when i was 16 i, I had never heard of any jobs at <laughs> all and so it seemed perfectly reasonable that i would go to school and become an actor um and i've certainly had i i have no regrets i'm very very fortunate as an actor and i've had a lot of fun and i'm i'm Plan to keep doing it for a long time, but I, there have been the occasional moment along the uh, along the years where I've been like, "Oh, if I'd known about engineering, <laughs> <laughs> like if I'd heard about that, or like like accounting, or some sensible career, like maybe I would have done that." But fortunately, I never heard about other jobs, and, and acting was the only job I, I knew about. How old were you when somebody said you should you should think about doing this for a living? Uh, probably sixteen or seventeen. Okay. Yeah. Okay. And I, I mean, you were saying that you've never heard you'd never heard of any other job. Did it seem <laughs> like did did you sort of wonder like what you can you can get paid for this? Uh, yeah. Um, <laughs> well, and part of that probably this is only just occurring to me now, but because Anaganish had this little summer stock theater company Mm -hmm. and 
so every summer these like actors would come from these exotic places like Halifax or mm-hmm. Toronto and would come and spend three months in Anaganish making doing plays in the summertime. Um, and so I had actually seen working actors mm-hmm. who got paid. I had no idea how much they got paid. Um, <laughs> <laughs> right. And, but, but it, I, I saw people making a, 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 what I presumed was a living at it. Mm-hmm. I, I know mm-hmm. now that, you know, it was probably a hard go for those actors, honestly. It's, it's a living. It, yeah. It's not, it's, it's sometimes not a, particularly lucrative or comfortable living but yeah. it's a living yeah of sorts yeah no it's a great living who are we kidding we we, we love it we love it but uh, no it's not easy financially no no and that's i think the thing that i mean no almost nobody ever tells you that mm-hmm. like early on um i remember when i was going to theater school at my audition uh the head of acting had this big nobody wants you speech and it was the first time that anybody had indicated that, you know, a life in the theater might be hard. Hmm. But of course I was a cocky, like 19 year old. So when he said, nobody wants you, I said, I thought, yeah, you don't know nothing. I felt the exact same way. I think we all do. <laughs> Cause I had the same thing. People tell you it's hard and you think to yourself, yeah, it's hard for everybody else. I'm going to be fine. You don't, you don't know me. Right. That's that cockiness of youth, I think. Yeah. That's that, yeah. And now I have this, I've developed over the last few years um, a weird fetish about personal finances. Mm. I, I really like talking about it. Um, in fact, like a friend took me out for beer yesterday because he had questions about HST. Uh, <laughs> and I on, on the bike ride to the to the bar, I thought to myself, Oh my God, what if he's actually playing a prank on me and he just told me the thing he knew would get me to the bar? (laughs) I'm such a nerd that I would love to talk about HST and I'm going to get there and he's going to have some prank or something like that. But no, he literally had questions. (laughs) Where did that come from? Um, Honestly, my husband. I met my husband who's a little (laughs) bit older than me and just had his stuff together a little more. Um, And I... And, and not out of, not in a, not in a patronizing kind of way, uh, very early when we started dating, he just sort of was not prying, but would ask a few questions about like, oh, you know, do you have any investments or anything like that? Um, cause he did and, and I didn't really. And, and he sent me a couple of links to things. And for, for the longest time I thought, oh, this is so boring. It's so boring. And I tell you, Phil. And maybe maybe you'll get bitten by the bug too. I don't know. Maybe maybe you love personal finances. Um, there's this moment where reading about personal finances, where you go from like this is so boring, this is so boring, this, is, and then one day it clicks, and you suddenly understand just a few small things, and you're just addicted. <laughs> it's so nerdy. Oh, I'm so lame. I'm but, curious. I'm curious because when when he said, I mean, I know what if somebody had said to me uh, when I because you know I have a day job now, but when mm-hmm. I was trying to make a go of acting full time, mm-hmm. if somebody had said, "Oh, do you have any investments?" I would have said, "Sweetie, I'm an actor." Totally. <laughs> totally. And I did. I think I did feel like that. But then I sort of, you know, you've got the equity RRSP, right? Mm-hmm. And so I sort of started paying a little bit more attention to that. And then I sort of thought, oh, you know, I, I could open a TFSA and I could, I could just squirrel away hmm. 20 bucks a week or something like that over time. Hmm. And, and don't get me wrong, I'm not rolling in it by any means, <laughs> but, but I feel a little bit in control, hmm. uh, which I think is important. And, and I, I bring all this up to say that um, I do think artists could... I think artists are often told that they shouldn't or get the sense that they shouldn't care about money mm-hmm. or know yeah. anything about money because, and, and that they won't have any. And I really feel like the opposite is true. You, we, we make so little money relative to mm-hmm. many other industries that we need to be more in control of it and more aware of it than mm-hmm. most people. 
Um, yeah. And I don't know how you tell that to people in university or in a training program because I, I certainly know that we had a couple of days of business class or what have you at UBC and man, that completely went over my head. I don't know how you get a 19 year old to pay attention to the fact that they might have to pay HST one day. Um, yeah. But but I do think it's important. Well, that's a tough do... one because I think there's a lot of things that they should be telling us in theater school. Yeah. Uh, like about producing. Totally. Since that's something that we all have to eventually yeah. learn how to do. I didn't get any of that. Did you get any of that in your training? No. I mean, of course, I mean, I keep asking people who've come out of theater school uh, uh, more recently than I. I came out of theater school in like 93, 94. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. uh, <clears throat> at that point, like when they would talk about fringe, it was like, you know, or, you know, if you can't do anything else, you know, you could always put on your own thing. You <laughs> know, it was desperate. like, yeah. yeah. And now it's like, of course, you're going to do that. But apparently I've been talking to people uh, still and it's still not something that they talk about. Um, maybe sure. they'll mention it, but nobody really talks about the essential need for knowing how to produce and they don't teach it. I wonder why that I wonder if that's like a this is a wild generalization, but a bit of a, 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 a generational thing because the professors presumably have been there for a while yeah, and are of another generation where maybe self-producing was less of a thing. I think that's part of it. I think also if you're, depending on the type of school you have, um, like if it's university, you're looking at it a little more academically and probably those guys have been there a lot longer. I came out of, uh, 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 I came out of the George Brown uh, school and all the teachers mm. were professional actors still okay. and um they were it's a conservatory so it was all about like preparing you to go to the audition and get the job and go to the next audition and get the job and that's going to be your career mm -hmm. um i think there's a slow realization that producing is a thing but mm -hmm. it's it's a i think it's i think still think it's a long way off hmm hmm yeah, I don't know. I don't know why that is because it's so vital. Eh? We all. That's why a, a gen, like a place like generator, mm -hmm. is so important, and it was so clever of staff to realize that if they really wanted to serve the community, they needed mm -hmm. to change their mandate and focus yeah. on helping people learn how to produce. It's. I mean, and there's so like a lot of us sort of like learn. The hard way like you get a show in the fringe and you're like oh fuck what do i do now you oh know? that's exactly what happened to me howland company yeah. got 52 pickup in the fringe a few years ago and mm -hmm. none of us had ever produced anything <laughs> and we had no idea what we we're doing unfortunately it was a fairly small show although we made mm. it more complicated by having four different casts and eight actors but um <laughs> but uh it was such a great learning experience and thank god mm. for fringe for that reason uh, well, while we're on the topic of the the Howland Company, um, what was the impetus to start to to to, to you were the one of the founding members of the Howland Company? So, what what inspired the start? Was it getting into Fringe that that birthed the company, or was it something no, else? No, we um we had been kicking around for about a year or so before we got into the Fringe. Um, really, Ruth Goodwin, James Graham, and Paolo Santalucia were, were three friends who then asked in turn a bunch of their friends to just come hang out and talk about what we wanted to do and what we wanted to be. We really started as um, uh, a kind of a practicing training opportunity for each other. So we're all mostly actors, so we would get together and read plays together. We still have an ongoing play reading series uh, during the year. Not It's on hiatus in the summer times, but every month we read a play with whoever wants to come and read with us. Nice. And uh, we would also ask um, people in the community that we were interested in if they would come and teach us. Uh, so we did that for about a year, but maybe in part because we're all actors, uh, it was a bit hard to get off the ground where producing was concerned. Mm. So then when we got this fringe slot, that was a real kick in the pants. Um, and that's, it's continued to be a bit like that because we then, uh, we, we certainly have drive, but it also helps when we're sort of forced into things. Like we, we applied for this great Canadian stage residency and that kind of forced us, oh crap, we actually have to make something happen for this. Um, uh, and uh, we, we sort of ta started talking to Holger Syme and he had a, a project he wanted to do. And we said, oh crap, we can't let Holger get Holger down. So we have to make that happen. And 
and we've got uh, punk rock coming up next year uh, mm -hmm. in the, the Crows Theater studio space, and, and that's the same. We've booked the space, so crap, we're gonna have to make it happen. Now you have to make it happen, yeah. yeah. It's funny because I there's so many times when I've I've you know people have a you know, it's a great idea let's get some actors together and we're going to you know we're going to do you know we'll do some readings we'll do some stuff uh, but without a solid project it's hard to herd the cats into one place yeah. for any length of time yeah absolutely that's, that's when did you start directing um, I directed uh, a small project in Anaganish years and years and years ago, um, but then really 52 Pickup, which I co-directed with Paolo Santalucia, uh, was my, my first project. Um, I've always wanted to, to direct more, and I really love it because I love ordering people around, <laughs> but uh, that was the first project. And so with that first incarnation of 52 Pickup, we had four casts, and so I directed two of them. Uh, and Paolo directed the other two. Hmm. Was there, I mean, you, you directed when you were still at home um, and then uh, coming to this project. Did you have any hesitation in directing or was it just something that you knew you wanted to do? Endless, constant hesitation. I'm terrified right now. <laughs> we opened Bray on September 21st and it's going to be great. Come. But um, <laughs> but I'm terrified. Uh, it's really nerve wracking. Um, I have benefited immensely, quite honestly, from watching Albert Schultz direct at Soul Pepper. Mm. I've learned a lot from from him, and I've learned a lot from from Paolo when we were working together on on that project and its subsequent remounts. Um, but it's it's a really nerve wracking thing. Um, I honestly, here's a secret, Phil, don't tell anyone. I honestly think a good portion of directing, though, is keeping your anxieties to yourself. Mm -hmm. And which isn't to say you can't say, wow, okay, I don't really know what we're going to do for this next transition. Anybody have any ideas? That's mm -hmm. always fair game. Why not take advantage of all the brilliant minds you have in a room? Let's, mm -hmm. let's think of things together. But the, I don't know if this is working. I'm so, <laughs> I'm so stupid. Like, no, no. You need to be the captain of the ship a little bit, and uh, yeah, and just just tell your actors that they're good and they're going to keep getting better, and uh, and you've got their back, and you're not going to let anybody look stupid out there. So you just have to swallow all of those inse insecurities for a while. A little bit, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And then maybe go to a good mentor here and there and ask questions. But, who Who are the mentors that you turn to? I have a, a good friend and mentor in Leah Cherniak. Uh, she taught me clown when I was in the Soul Pepper Academy, and she founded Theater Columbus here in Toronto. Um, and she's just she mentors me in every respect of my life. <laughs> <laughs> we have drinks, and and I talk to her about I don't know what I'm doing, and like. I think I'm going to marry this guy. What do you think about that? And I think I'm going to do a play. And she's just endlessly encouraging and, and is a big fan of taking risks. Mm. And that's what's admirable about a lot of the work that she's done with, with Theatre Columbus and, um, and with Soul Pepper and, and other places is um, Leah is always game to make a mess and makes no promises about cleaning it up afterward. Mm. She's mm. just going to try some stuff. We've been working uh, on and off on a project that she's leading about uh, Chopin. And I tell you, like, she makes me crazy sometimes because we'll, we'll start working and she'll play a prelude and she'll kind of be like, okay, go. Meaning what? Like, go and do some stuff now <laughs> on the stage. Just go act and sometimes i'm like no tell me tell me what to do but she just has so con so much confidence that mm. actors have enough in them to 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 make make something and hmm. she, she's a really like she's a really good, gonna sit back and, and wait and see what happens I, i'm a much more um i'm far more of a control freak Mm. So uh, my actors right now will tell you that I'm very much like, okay, you're going to enter on this line, <laughs> and <laughs> walk over here. <laughs> uh, but 
but I think that's why she's such a good mentor to me because um, in a way her, her taste and her style is so different. So it pushes me to, to let go of some of my, my tendencies. And how are you doing with that? Is that, is that something that you struggle with or? With letting go of being a control freak. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Ah! I, think, I think most control freaks struggle mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. with letting go of control. Mm. <laughs> um, but, you know, back to what we were talking about the, at the beginning of this conversation, I think that's one benefit of um, overstretching yourself is sometimes you just have to admit, I got to let this go mm-hmm. And, mm-hmm. And, and trust that it's going to work out. Yeah, that's true. There's there's a certain amount of of trust in in theater anyway that you just have to put it out there. Yeah. And hope that what you think works in the room actually works. Yeah. Yes. And it is a terrifying thing when you do your first stumble through, your first run and you have people watching in the house. Even it's it's just your creative team, it's just designers. And even though they're not saying anything or doing anything and they're probably smiling and they're probably laughing or whatever, all of a sudden you see the show completely differently mm-hmm. because there's new eyes on it and you see all of the flaws that, mm. of your own making uh, that you've never seen before. But that's why you need to have audiences and that that, yeah. that goes all the way through to the run. It's never going to be perfect. You need to no. at some point show it to someone. And I do I do wonder sometimes if we spend too much time workshopping stuff times hmm. sometimes i wonder because i've heard people say that maybe we need to workshop more and huh. i've heard other people that that maybe we spend too much time workshopping so i think they're they're very very much two different uh, <laughs> Camp. uh camps in, in things you know i think i think that the the risk averse like the idea of uh workshopping more and more right there's something about throwing it up there and figuring it out like we think it works and now let's find out if the audience thinks it works right but what is a workshop mm. like a, a produ- see this production of gray we're going to run it for mm-hmm. two weeks in september i i mean i guess we're not going to advertise it as such but in my mind it's very much a workshop in the sense mm. that we're we're doing it on a on a low budget with time limitations mm-hmm. So it's not the Broadway production, you right. know. Um, we're doing our very best. Uh, we're we're working with the playwright who is so wonderfully generous and open with his time and game to make changes if needs be or to to work on things. And and that's that's a workshop, hmm. and we're going to present it and um, and if it should have another life beyond that, we'll make changes. I have no doubt hmm. of that. Uh, I worked on a project last year called Other Jesus with public recordings uh, that Frank Cox O'Connell directed. And brilliantly, and sometimes frustratingly as an actor, but but mostly brilliantly, um, we continued to rehearse that show uh, throughout almost the entire run. Hmm. So we ran it for not long. I think we just ran it for a week. Um, but we had four or five rehearsals after opening. Mm-hmm. And and then I think we did the last two shows without any more rehearsals. Mm. Part of that was because Public Recordings knows that they're remounting it and they're going to do it again next year. Right. Um, but I also just think for a new work, why not? Why not yeah. continue to tweak? I mean, you know, tweaking for a month is probably excessive, but mm-hmm. a run of audiences, it's... it's because we don't generally have a lot of previews, especially in indie. In indie theater, no. Yeah. Um, like I think sometimes we'll call our dress rehearsal a preview. Like we don't, we don't have a lot of opportunities to preview. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> and previews are really important, especially if you have any kind of comedy, right? Yeah. Because yeah. you need to. I mean, Albert Schultz at Soul Pepper will tell you like he does most of his work in previews, mm. and that's that's really true. A, a, sh- a show that he's directing will change drastically from the first preview to. The, mm. the opening. I hmm. think that the first preview of Spoon River, I wasn't in it, so I, I might be making this up, but I'm pretty sure the first preview of Spoon River had an intermission and was like two hours long. Hmm. And, and the show is now a 90 minute one act show. Right. Hmm. So that's, you know, that's drastic. Yeah. 
Yeah, it's, I mean, <clears throat> it's always really, really hard to know. I mean, I remember uh, when I was working with the first show that we did with Keystone Theater, we did this massive play in the style of a silent film called The Bell of Winnipeg. And our first our, we did this workshop where we like spent a week and we were finally we'd spent three years developing characters and ideas and storylines and sticks and we put it all together and then we did it for an audience and they kind of hated it oh, um, no. <laughs> well i mean there were the thing is that we'd tried to put so much in that they couldn't follow it so right. it was totally an important learning experience and you didn't it know was, that until you had people there right exactly we had no idea until we had an audience not react to things. Mm -hmm. um, and then we took a whole lot out and we focused on what the important things were. And we never would have made that discovery if we didn't have that first shot in front of the audience. Mm -hmm. So, mm -hmm. but then I, I think there, are, there, go ahead. Go on. Oh, just like, well, I, I don't just... know if there's a way to like get, audiences into the rehearsal hall i don't think anybody's really come up with a good consistent way to make that happen beyond no. like special occasion things but especially for comedy because your, mm -hmm. your castmates are going to get sick of your joke after the first four days and then you don't know anymore if it works or if it doesn't until preview yeah every time i've done a show with keystone theater the first performance i'm holding my breath backstage mm -hmm. for that first laugh because yeah. we think it's pretty funny but we don't know for sure. Yeah. No idea. No idea. Yeah. And so I've enjoyed like, yeah. I've enjoyed like doing like lo longer runs of things as an actor. Mm. And, and it does feel like a laboratory sometimes. Like, well, that's oh. such a rare gift. We almost never get the opportunity to, to run things for a long time. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's true. Mostly it's remounts. And that's one thing that I, I, I wish we had a, a, a better consistent way of, of making hmm. remounts. I think remounts are really important. I guess that's to the point about workshops. The first yeah. production of anything, if it's a new script, it's a mm -hmm. workshop. Yeah. And it should change if there's going to be a remount. It should, there should be changes unless it's miraculously good. There almost always are beneficial changes that could be made, provided mm -hmm. that there is a remount. So remount <laughs> everything. That's my new dictum. Well, I think, I mean, imagine what you could do with a remount. Mm -hmm. I mean, if you've only had the chance to run something for two weeks, if you're lucky, three, the opportunity to do it again and take everything that you learned from performing it mm -hmm. and just put that into the show again and, like, say, instead of saying, oh, I wish we could have done that, to say, ooh, now we can do that, mm -hmm. it's, it's, it's a gift that we so rarely get. Mm -hmm. Super valuable. So you were going to ask me about Greg? I was going to ask you about Greg. Um, I, I'm curious about, uh, first off, how you got involved with, with the project, how you see it. And let's start with, like, what's it about? Yeah, well, um, Gray is a, it's a wild adaptation of A Picture of Dorian Gray. Christopher Van Solen has taken the basic plot of A Picture of Dorian Gray and transposed it to modern day and... Um, and switched a lot of the genders of the characters. Mm. Um, so it's a primarily female cast now, which, oh my God, uh, have you seen today that there's going to be a movie version of a movie adaptation of a picture of Dorian Gray with a female lead? What? Yeah. No, I didn't even see that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I just read it on, on Slate today. Um, That's crazy. St. Vincent... Uh, is going the the pop musician Saint Vincent is going to direct, um, and uh, uh, I'm reading this on Variety is going mm. to adapt and direct the picture of Dorian Gray uh, with a female lead, um, mm. with Lionsgate. Ah! You're so, ahead of the curve, yeah. Exactly. So I, I forwarded that to Chris, and he was like, "So it must be a good idea." <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So I um. I've kind of been in touch with the wonderful women at Theatre in Amarada for a couple of years. And when they, they've been adapting this for a while, and then they asked me, uh, they asked me last year if I wanted to do it. Um, so I was, I'm, I'm always quite keen to find opportunities to direct because I, I want to learn, right? And I think yeah. we just need to practice. Um, so I said, oh my gosh, yeah. But it, it is, it's a challenge in the sense that I've never directed something this big. It's six actors and quite a mm. sweeping story over a long period of time. 
Um, and so it's certainly a challenge, but it's going well so far. Well, that's good. And and you came in a, a, a year before? Um, we workshopped, no, not that long ago. We workshopped mm. it in, I think, June. Okay. And they've been adapting it for years. Chris okay. has been on it for quite some time. Mm. Um, so I'm a relative newcomer to the project. And uh, so I've been through like a couple of drafts, but my understanding is that they have gone through quite a number of drafts with some pretty pretty big changes over time. Mm. Um, have, have, have you, as, as the director uh, coming into this thing that's been in process for quite a while, mm-hmm. um, have you... Did you stand back and just let them uh, uh, keep working on it, or did you come in with suggestions and what on on directions they they could go? Or you really should interview Chris. He's so <laughs> great. He's such a generous and patient playwright. I can't imagine how frustrating it must be to have this total newcomer who's like read the script once come in and be like. Yeah, I was thinking maybe you should change the order of these two scenes and I think you should cut this part and I think you should add this part and what if you did this? And he is so good at culling my good ideas from my bad ones, mm. fortunately, um, and so patient with me. Um, uh, so to answer your question, no, I've been quite vocal and a little bit bossy. Um, so. <laughs> Part That's... of that is just like wanting to throw things at the wall and see what sticks. Were there things that you threw at the wall that didn't stick and you just sort of had to admit, no, that wasn't a good idea? Hmm. I don't know. I forget my failings immediately. <laughs> That's uh, probably a good idea. Yeah. I, I mean, the thing is, I think this show, uh, I think we're going to do really interesting things with it. Um, with a kind of low budget theatricality. Uh, but it's the kind of thing that could really scale up or scale down. So I will mm-hmm. say the first time I read it, I was like, how do we do this on a low budget? Because, you know, a picture of Dorian Gray, you immediately can imagine artwork and full scale oil paintings mm-hmm. and sculptures and mm-hmm. projections of paintings in progress. And it could, it could be really quite high tech and expensive. Yeah. Um, but we're going to, leave a lot of that to the audience's imagination what does what does uh transposing the genders in in some of the roles do in your mind for the plea for the piece yeah it's um that's such a good question and i it's funny um the word like this is a feminist production has been thrown around a lot in part because Theatre Inamorata is a company that is interested in creating work for women and mm-hmm. adapting classic works for women and, and is a feminist theatre company. Um, and I've been kind of rolling that around in my head a little bit while just, just doing the work, telling the story. Mm-hmm. And then this fantastic article came out today in Intermission Magazine. Um, uh, uh, Kim, uh, Kim Solga wrote this great article about uh, the the Bacchae at Stratford and whether or not it's a, a feminist production. Hmm. Um, I, I haven't actually seen the show yet. I'm hoping to catch it uh, later this summer, but um, she talks about this conflict between the director's vision and maybe the playwright and the cast vision, because the women in the play do terrible things. They're kind of awful people. Hmm. And similarly in Dorian Gray, a many of these female characters who were originally male characters do terrible misogynistic things to each other Hmm. and so the question is can that can it still be a feminist play and what what kim says in this this play um in in this article in, in intermission that i think i completely sense also in our production is that there is a a singular narrative of feminism to quote her um, where feminism and feminist shows can only portray women doing good, strong feminist things. Hmm. Uh, And I don't think that's the case. And indeed in this show, we're showing complex women engaging in sometimes 
terrible acts towards each other. And I guess that's the thing about changing the gender is even mm. if they're engaging in the same actions as the male characters in the story, wh when you make it a woman, it brings up all of these other questions of, of representation and whether mm. it's okay for women to do these things and to be terrible and to be villains. Um, I wonder about, I wonder about that, like having to ask that question, like the question of, is it okay for us to have women who do these terrible things? Uh, does that make us unfeminist is almost an unfeminist question in well, my exactly, mind. Exactly. Exactly. Like, exactly. If, uh, if we're just concerned with having women be good to each other, then we're falling victim to like every, I don't know, trope that like a lot of tropes that I can think of that are mm -hmm. not particularly feminist. Yeah. Delicate, good mm -hmm. women, mm -hmm. good, good girls. Right. Yeah, absolutely. But I think that's, um, that's something that a lot of, a, a lot of us are grappling with in this time, especially when you're adapting a, a classic like this mm. is just wanting to serve our own ideals, right? And mm -hmm. I do absolutely identify as a feminist, as do as does Peter and Murano, wanting to serve those ideals. But I think Chris and the theater company have not backed down from portraying in, in gray some, yeah, some really complicated and at times really terrible actions hmm. by women. Have Has anything surprised you working on this show? Just anything. Uh, anything that happened with, with actors, with the script, anything that you didn't expect? Uh... All constantly. Con con every day. Every mm. single day. Um, everybody's everybody's so generous all the time. Oh, we have this like brilliant new performer, uh, 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 Sydney uh, Violet Bristow. And uh, she's very new to the theater scene. Um, she's trans and she's playing a trans character in the mm -hmm. play. And her incredible patience as a newcomer to the, to the theater scene um, in a room full of people who've done kind of a lot of theater um, is forcing me to revisit my own training and really learn to how to like slow down and actually break down what acting is and mm. what directing is and what music is. We were doing a little bit of singing together yesterday, she and I, and, mm. and that's, that's been a really big surprise is actually how useful it can be to have somebody really put the brakes on things. Now is, is she putting the brakes on things because uh, she's uh, questioning what is quote unquote understood um, or just asking good questions? Um, what is it? Asking good questions and maybe mm. sometimes not even knowing what question to ask, but just knowing mm. that she, she's not sure, right? Mm. She's, she's, and I can, I can see that. And, and she's, she's not afraid to say, I, I just, what's happening, you know? Um, and she has a really complicated part in that she has to perform some Shakespeare in the play. She's, she's playing the, the role of Sybil, which in the original, as in our script, is this um, young actor who um, uh, Dorian Gray sees and becomes enamored with because she's so talented. Mm. And then she, I don't think I'm giving anything away by because it's Oscar Wilde. Um, and then she gives a terrible, terrible performance um, in part because Dorian Gray has professed professed love to her mm. and it distracts her. Mm. And she gives this terrible performance that Dorian has invited friends to. So Sydney, who's a relative newcomer to, to, to the theater scene, um, but who's fantastic, uh, has to be both the most brilliant Shakespearean actor you've ever seen and the worst Shakespearean actor you've ever seen. <laughs> in amongst also acting the story of, of this, mm. this actor who's, who meets Dorian Gray and falls in love. So it's this incredibly complicated part. Um, yeah. So I, I didn't really anticipate that, oh, I'm going to have to really revisit my own Shakespeare training and, and try to impart some of that and uh, help her through that. Um, and she's so game and so enthusiastic, mm. thankfully. Uh, 
So that's been a really big surprise for me. I think it's interesting the the idea of of just like having somebody who's like free to ask questions and to say no, I don't understand that. Mm-hmm. Like how many times was I I think of myself like how many times was I too afraid to ask that question right? in a rehearsal I hall? I know. And I'm still It's so brave. Yeah. It's so brave. And I I read this somewhere years ago that sometimes uh having a polite actor in a rehearsal room is not nearly as useful as having a, an antagonistic one. Hmm. Um, you know, you don't, you don't want to work with assholes, but people who are willing to question and comment hmm. and attack, Oh, is this actually useful? Is this, is this a story we're telling? Um, but, and I'm, I'm guilty of this myself. We all kind of weren't want to work with friends. We can go for a beer with after rehearsal. Right. Of course. And, and you know, we have to because, especially if we're not making a lot of money, we might as well have some fun. Well, exactly. But I do think there's something to just taking the gloves off in the rehearsal room mm. and, and admitting to your own doubts and questions. And I think somebody told me once that 2B Theater in Halifax, um, I don't know if this is true. I might be making this up about them, but they're all friends and colleagues and they have a process that, of creation because they make a lot of work. They do a lot of devised work um, where in the room, they really have a policy of uh, asking each other, Oh, do, do you like my idea? And and the rule is you have to answer honestly and say, Oh, that's so hard. That's so I hard. know. Can oh, how do you even get to that point where you can actually do that? I don't know. Cause I think it's, it's all well and good as long as everybody agrees. And then you've got, there's like that one time where you have to be the asshole. Who's like, uh, no, I hate if your you've idea. made that agreement. If yeah. you've made that agreement, I don't even know how you do that. But there's a safety in making the agreement, I guess. Yes. And saying, no, we really, you, we hold, we hold to this and you asked me and I have to say, mm. I hate your idea. Mm. It's a terrible idea, which doesn't mean you can't still defend it. But right now I hate your idea. Yeah. But then you really have to trust each other's taste too. Oh, you really do. You really do. And it's like the idea that you can do that. And like, I guess part of the process is getting to the point where you can do that. And that happened in the room. Rehearsal's over. Let's go for a beer. Mm-hmm. And that's not hold the grudge. That's tough. That's really tough. Mm. We, uh, I have this friend, Hannah Miller, who I did the Academy with. And we did the audition weekend for the Academy together. And the audition weekend for the Academy is very much about making little devised works together. Okay. And like something about our energy together. We were on fire that weekend, Phil. Mm. Like, you know, we're making these little things. We had scenes together. We had little creations together and we were on fire and we just, and then we got into the Academy together and she would say the same thing. We can't work together. We make each other crazy. Like, oh, really? Oh. Yeah. Like we have completely different taste. And, and we hate each other's ideas. And I think it really worked for that brief period of time because the pressure was on and, mm. and we were really willing to be like, no, I don't want to do that. Yes, I want to do that. No, I want to do that. But then we got into this longer protracted working time and it was harder to kind of shove aside the passive aggressiveness. And, and, and so we agreed that we would never make shows together <laughs> except, except if we did, we'd have a theater company that we'd call Mutual Destruction. <laughs> Because that's what it would be. We would just kill each other. How long did it take you to realize that? Months. I mean, you have that. You have that. That 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 great period of creation when you're at that at that weekend, and then how long after you got into the academy did it take for you to to realize that no, this doesn't work? I, actually, you know what? Probably not that long. But we kept trying for months. <laughs> Probably like three weeks in, I was like, "Oh, you make me mad." <laughs> <laughs> Uh, but, uh, probably we kept trying all year really. Mm-hmm. And we finally did this, um, collective creation project all together. And, uh, we just, just hated all of her ideas and she just hated all of mine. And fortunately we could kind of break apart and just, we just, we just, we realized, oh, we can't work together. We just mm-hmm. can't, we can't, but it takes a while to admit that we're so Canadian. We don't want to ever admit not getting along with someone. Oh, of course. Of course. Of course. Yeah. And we're actually really quite good friends. Like I, I really like her as a person. I just, you just can't work with her. Yeah. 
<laughs> so as we as we sort of start to 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 draw to a close, um, uh, I'm just curious about. I mean, you were saying that that you learned so much from from watching Albert uh, uh, Albert Schultz direct. Um, uh, and and you have your your mentor who who directs it in such a very different way from you. Mm-hmm. Um, can you aside from I mean you sort of alluded to being a control freak and 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 I think you used the word bossy once. Mm-hmm. Um, can you in in a little more depth could you describe your directing style? Mm-hmm. I say sorry a lot, but I don't mean it. Um, I, uh, I think, hmm, gosh, that's hard. It's hard to know yourself, isn't it? Mm. Um, well, right now we're kind of going through our second pass of the play mm-hmm. and I always schedule not enough time because I'm not willing to admit how slow I go. Mm. Um, but Right now, it's really just, what do these words mean? How are you saying them to each other? What are these little moments of connection? And it just takes a long time. And I need to see things over and over and over again. Mm. Um, so that's why I say sorry a lot, because I'm constantly saying, sorry, guys, sorry, sorry, but can we go from the top again? Sorry, we're <laughs> going to go back. Sorry, let's stop. sorry stop. I'm going to stop you. I, I know I only let you do two lines, but I'm going to stop you. We're going to do that again. And this is why. Um, so I hope, hopefully, detail-oriented. Um, but, uh, not super prepared. I'm not like a big planner <laughs> director. I, I don't have little charts. I did a show once years ago where, uh, I got to rehearse on the first day and the director had this booklet mm. that with little, little maps of where we were to stand, uh, for any given scene. I, I know I, those. I know that book. I've I've worked with directors who have that book, and and I I don't particularly enjoy it. I know, but I, I admire it because if you have a huge project, I get it. I'm just incapable of it. Uh, I get it if it's like if the stage is full of people and there's intricate movements. I see. I absolutely see mapping that out. Yeah, yeah. But I don't see that much anymore. Mm. Actually, I wonder if it's kind of going the way of a dinosaur or something. Those booklets. Um, so I'm not I'm not super prepared in that sense, but uh, mm. hopefully detail oriented, and I just need to see things over and over again. Mm. I'm um, I'm sometimes a little bit slow to pick up on what's happening, and I sometimes I think that's actually useful because audiences can be a bit slow too if you're not mm. clear about what the story is and what the connection is. Um, so I, sometimes I think not being super swift on on picking up the nuances can be useful. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And yeah, and I just, I need to, I need to see it in front of me in the room and I need to do it over and over again. And, uh, and like I said, I apologize about that a lot, but I don't need it. <laughs> <laughs> I I think there could be no more Canadian statement than I apologize <laughs> a lot, but I don't mean it. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Well, Courtney, thank you so much for talking with me today. This has been a lot of fun. Hey, thank you, Phil. This has been, uh, yeah, a real treat. And I I love what you're doing. I think that it's a a brilliant thing to have this kind of podcast on the air. 